0: Lines written in the days of growing darkness by Mary Oliver. Every year we've been witness to it, how the world descends into a rich mash in order that it may resume. And therefore who would cry out to the petals on the ground to stay? Knowing as we must, how the vivacity of what was is married to the vitality of what will be. I don't say it's easy, but what else will do if the love one claims to have for the world be true? So let us go on. Cheerfully enough, this and every crisping day, though the sun be swinging east and the ponds be cold and black, and the sweets of the year be doomed.
1: Welcome to The Open Air. This is Jesse Racler, and you're listening to Open Air Humans, stories of how people have found a happier, healthier, more human life outdoors. And welcome also to the second season of the show, as we walk into a brand new year. We couldn't be more excited to kick off this new season and year with a voice you might recognize. My guest today, Emily Stone, has been with us before, sharing the stories she's found in the wild as a naturalist, columnist, and educator who writes Hidden Connections, a weekly column introducing readers to hundreds of small wonders to be found every day in nature. Today's discussion ended up being a very personally meaningful one for me. If you've enjoyed the moments in this podcast that touch on the magical, the spiritual, the beauty of the mystery of what's happening all around us if we only look closer, you'll love this episode. Emily's view of death and rebirth as a naturalist is one I think can help all of us in daily living. And with the poetry of Mary Oliver guiding the narrative, I really can't think of a more beautiful, if at times poignant, Way to welcome 2023 and kick off season two of open air humans this episode is brought to you by the open air outpost a new nature escape with luxury tiny cabin and glamping options just two hours northeast of the twin cities it's a place where we've made it easy to put into practice all the wisdom we've learned from the guests on this very show you can even book unique experiences with some of them as part of your stay learn more at openairoutpost.com without further ado Emily, I'm very excited to see where today's topic takes us, but first, I wanted to start by thanking you for your night hike tips <laughs> from our last discussion, um, specifically the idea of exploring with a UV light. Uh, it's blown not only the minds of my three and six-year-olds on a regular basis, um, but also the minds of nine grown men I was in the Boundary Waters with last month, and we were you know, going along the shore, looking at the trees and the rocks, and then came up a- a crawfish which just glowed neon blue um, and it's been so cool to take that out and uh, see the world in a little bit of a different way and for our listeners you should go back and listen to that episode and get yourself a uv light but i'm curious if you've made any new discoveries with your uv light recently if you're still getting out with that at all
0: Yeah, I only got out once this fall, fairly recently. And, you know, it's been so dry that I I love looking Mm. at mosses, but the mosses are not super happy right now. Right. So (laughs) it wasn't very spectacular, but it it was fun. I brought a friend with me who had never tried that before. And so it was really neat to see it through her eyes for the first time. And that, you know, that's one of my favorite things about going out into nature is that whenever I bring someone new, I get to experience it for the first time again too.
1: Oh, it's so much fun. And and to see things that you see like on a daily basis in a in a totally well, literally a new light, but in a totally new way. I mean, yeah. that's so fun. Um well, speaking of seeing things in like a new way and exploring the darkness, I was really excited to to have you back for Really, a very seasonally appropriate discussion being today is, we're literally recording this on the Day of the Dead, no less, um, about something you've written and spoken quite a bit about, um, and that is how a naturalist perceives death and how the cycles of the natural world, when we start paying closer attention to them, can really affect our personal view of death and dying. And I've always found comfort in the metaphors to be found in nature, and this is one area of focus that I think can be quite profoundly beneficial when we look closer at um, but before we dive into that specifically, I was hoping for the benefit of those who may not have yet listened to the first episode we did together, if you could say just a little bit about what you do as a naturalist and how what you uncover in that pursuit can affect your worldview or really your your life view in this case.
0: Yeah, so um, gosh, I've been the naturalist here at the Cable Natural History Museum for almost 12 years, and one of the most... Personally and professionally, rewarding parts of my job is writing my natural connections articles every single week. And so that gives me an excuse to research a new topic potentially every single week. And also whenever I'm out there in the world, I am thinking about how could I turn this into a story? How could I teach that, about this to someone so that they would be as excited about it as I am? And, or how can I turn this really mundane thing into something that is profound? And I just, I love hiking through the world um, with that idea in the back of my mind, because you know every week having a deadline every week is a lot. (laughs) And teaching about nature just constantly, I have to do stuff to keep myself from getting bored. And I, I love that challenge of taking the most mundane thing and trying to make it profound. And so that really has benefited me personally so much because everything Mm -hmm. could be filled with such wonder and such joy if you just have the right perspective on it. And recently I've been doing an activity with kids and adults alike called Treasure Finders. Ooh, that sounds fun. Oh, it's so great. And this really epitomizes my worldview, I guess. So we have plastic dive rings um, from the, the sports section, the kids section at a big box store. And- I give each student or pairs of students one and they just toss them out into the woods. And the story is these are magical treasure finders. Mm. They are drawn toward magic and wherever they land, you will find a treasure. Mm. And of course the real challenge is turning whatever they land on into (laughs) a treasure by how you're looking at it. And it is just so delightful. I did this with a group of 4-H kids this summer and watch their faces as I was able to turn, you know, a single um, Canada mayflower leaf into an absolute treasure and something working together with the other leaves in its patch. And it was, it was really neat. So that, you know, being a naturalist is my entire worldview pretty much. Um, And I do it professionally. And then I also do it personally. So, and, you know, it's the relation to how I think about death has also been a big part of my spirituality and philosophy and um thinking about the world so it's it's a good combination
1: well i love how you marry like you said like finding the magic in a you know natural system or a natural cycle finding the magic or or maybe the poetry in it and it's funny i was thinking about this earlier that you know in school we learn poetry in english class and science is science class but wow, where those two things overlap is such an incredibly philosophically fertile ground um, to play with. And I think it's it's where I read the work of writers like Robin Wall Kimmerer, and we were talking about Mary Oliver, and we're gonna get, share some of her work in this conversation. But um, Ursula Gwynne said this about science and poetry, and I love it. It's, science describes accurately from the outside, poetry describes accurately from the inside science explicates, poetry implicates, both celebrate what they describe. And I love wow. that. And I think you know both get at a truth, it's just a different way of uh, conveying the truth maybe. Um, and I wanted to ask you, when did you start, first start seeing poetry in what you were finding in your work as a naturalist? And when did, when did what you were finding start to shape your view of, of death in your own life?
0: Well, in terms of seeing poetry and I'm going to extend that to magic in the natural world, that was how I started. I mean, I was Mm -hmm. an avid reader of fiction and fairy tales and mystery and magic and the land, the rich and the wardrobe and Mm -hmm. all of those things. And so, you know, my entire back backyard was filled with magic. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) And um, so I've always felt that, that nature was imbued with, fairies and magic and all those things and you know for a little while school was telling me that they weren't the same thing (laughs) right Um, and then after after learning enough about it I I came around to it again and I I often say in my talks that you know I I only read fiction as a kid and then after I studied science enough I started realizing that all of the best plots and villains and magic and fairies that you could even try to make up all of those things have already been written and described in nature. You know, mm. it's just out there um, if you if you choose to to have the perspective to see it. So, yeah, um, I come I've always been a reader and I used to be a reader of fiction. And now I'm a reader of the stories in nature. Mm. And where that started translating into my philosophy of death, I think, is when my aunt Nan passed away. Hmm. Um, we were pretty close, and she was so eccentric. I, I worked in Acadia National Park for a summer in, oh, in cool. Maine, and in a different summer was able to get to know her better, even though she lived so far from where I grew up in the Midwest. And she was just a delight. She was a had went to had gone to. Methodist um, seminary and had a Buddhist shrine. And whenever she saw a beautiful cloud or a rainbow or a flower, whatever it was, she would say, Oh, thank you, goddess. Mm -hmm. And so her spirituality was just intertwined with everything she did in the world. And then, you know, she got cancer Mm. and that was a, a long process, a long enough process of dying that we were all able to sort of talk about it together and philosophize and she specifically wanted her ashes spread in four different locations. She gave very specific accounts of where, and then she also told us that she was gonna come back as dragonflies, mm. potentially as every dragonfly. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in losing, in losing her specifically because of how she saw the world and moved through the world, I had also just started reading Mary Oliver, and the whole dragon coming back as a dragonfly thing just made total sense to me. And in the end, after Nan passed away, I felt closer to her than ever, wow. because while she was alive, she was halfway across the country and hard to get a hold of by phone, and you know, I'd see her maybe once a year, if that. And when she passed away, she was everywhere. She was in every single dragonfly that I ever saw. And, you know, in every rainbow and flower and everything. And so um, that's when I really started to work that into my spirituality. And, of course, learning about ecology and decomposition and everything, it just makes so much sense that, you know, when when you die, you aren't really gone, especially if you're cremated in your ashes are, are spread somewhere unique. You know, if you're in, um, to me, the worst death possible is to be locked away in a concrete box in the ground. That I think that really is death. Um, but if you can be spread, if your atoms and your molecules can rejoin the world, then you're never really dead.
1: Hmm. Can you say more about what you, well, two things. I'm curious, when you said you, this is when you started reading Mary Oliver, and I'm wondering if there was a particular work I know, I think Wings came came to <laughs> mind, um, if you want to share anything from that. But then also what you were learning in terms of the science of decomposition um, that that made you think like, oh, wow, she literally... Could her atoms could be in this dragonfly that I'm seeing.
0: I was first introduced to Mary Oliver by a ranger in Yosemite National Park when I was working in the Redwoods of California as a teacher naturalist. And I was intrigued, and I think I printed a couple of her poems off to use in my teaching with fifth graders at science camp. And then the first book that I purchased of hers was House of Light, Um and wings is in that book, I believe, and you know it's the story about a a great blue heron um, dying and being incorporated into the mud. The sooner to fly, um, or or a person being incorporated into the swamp that the the heron flies out of. And so, I just love this idea of man sort of melting away into the swamp. The sooner to fly, and knowing that her, her elements um, could become part of anything. And then she, she chose dragonflies um, to be her legacy. Um, But at that same science camp, you know, I was teaching redwood ecology and stream ecology every single week to these fifth graders, and also working with just really fascinating other naturalists and In California, there were a lot of hippie pot smoking, super philosophical, you know, this (laughs) more philosophical worldview than I had encountered really in the Midwest. You know, my mind was blown and we went deeper than I really had been before. But also teaching about things over and over every single week, I really could, you know, the kids would ask a question or I would have a question and I would just dive deeper. And so that's when I really started putting our or. Thoroughly understanding ecology by having to teach it um, mm. at the fifth grade level.
1: Mm. That's awesome. Um, I think as we, you know, as we look around us right now, especially at, at this time of year. Um, I mean, I'd love to get some like specific examples of where you see this resurrection happening, like all the time. And I think, you know, we look around right now. A lot of the leaves are down, but talking about. The sugar maple and what happens with those leaves. I mean, it's this beautiful display every autumn. But I think to understand more about like what's actually going on there, as the leaves are falling down, is a, a cool way to look at this.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And sugar maples are really unique. They, you know, if you've if you've heard of the wood wide web and that whole mycorrhizal network oh, of trees love it. Oh, with yeah. fungus on their roots and the fungus helping them access nutrients. Sugar maples don't have that. They have a different type of mycorrhizal fungus that doesn't produce such integrated large networks. Mm. And I think that's partly because sugar maples kind of choose the best soils and the best sites. They are in the music forest that that already has, the soil has a lot of those nutrients more available. But it's also the leaves of the sugar maples, you know, the trees, um, their roots go deep and they bring up phosphorus and other nutrients from deep in the ground and then their leaves are not super robust they are they have that plan to lose them every year and then their leaves decompose quickly enough that those nutrients go back into the soil cycle just right away and build up the soil so sugar maples are mulching and composting their own forest for their own for their their selves, their their own use and then for Um, their children as well and so it's a really neat cycle that it's part of the plan that they lose their leaves every year and create such wonderful black soil in their music forest habitat
1: Mm, that's awesome i think that's part of when i first started seeing i mean it's the such visually obvious example of like there's this death that happens every fall and then there's this period of rest and then there's this rebirth every spring and it's why I think I could never leave this area and live in somewhere without those seasons because I love that seasonality and that constant reminder of death and rebirth. What else did you start seeing in these natural cycles that showed you like, yeah, this is how the universe is written. There's death because life needs death, right?
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, I think uh, one of my favorite examples of that is a, a rotting log. And there's this saying in ecology that a tree is more alive when it's dead. <laughs> and I just love it because, you know, a tree is alive just in the, on the, around the outer part of its trunk in that inner bark, the cambium and the phloem, and then the, the twigs and the leaves. And that's really all that's alive on a tree. That main part of the trunk is all dead cells and they have a purpose. Mm. Um, but when a tree dies, then the fungal mycelium just interweave their way in between all of those cells in there. If they're a brown rot fungus, they're actually spewing um, hydrogen peroxide into the wood to wow. start to decompose it. Or if they're a white rot fungus, then they're using a whole series of enzymes to break the cellulose back down into sugars that the fungus can then absorb into its body. And so you have the fungus, you also have bacteria in there decomposing, you have all sorts of different insects and beetles, and then you have the birds that are coming to eat those things, you might have carpenter ants, you know, there's all sorts of different life that comes to colonize this tree once it's dead. And so especially with the fungal mycelium, it will be just absolutely packed with life versus the living tree where the living parts are only on the outer shell.
1: Wow. Wow. <laughs> That's fascinating. It's like you, you see that and there's no way to perceive all of these events that are taking place and what that means. And that idea that, that you talk about where there's like a ripple from a death, right, that ripples into so many other life forms. Um, there was another example that I I heard you talk about also with trees. And there's a reason why the trees on the banks of salmon filled rivers grow quite a bit taller than than the trees on other riverbanks, right? I'm curious if you could tell us a little bit about that story.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You know, salmon carry all sorts of nutrients upstream from the ocean. You know, they grow for three to four years on the ocean and there's a lot of food out there so they get nice and big and when they come upstream and die, then, you know, just their body decomposing in the stream or near the stream or Um, predators and scavengers eating them, carrying their carcass up to the shore, pooping nearby. Um, The trees near salmon streams have nitrogen from the ocean all the way in the tips of their branches. And it is just an amazing story to me. That type of cycle happens everywhere (laughs) with animals carrying nutrients from one place to another and really fertilizing different spots. But to know that there is nitrogen from the ocean in the tops of trees carried there by salmon, I think is really inspiring.
1: That's so wild. It's so wild. You would not know by, by looking um, unless you look closer. That's so cool. Um, so, you know, I think there's so many examples, you know, in the life on Earth, but Earth itself is born of death right, the death of a supernova. Can you tell us a little bit about how this plays out on a cosmic level?
0: Yeah, absolutely, that was another benefit of working at that science camp in California because I took over the evening program about stars and planets and stuff Ah, from one of the other naturalists and I really didn't know before, I'd never been a space kid, but when I learned that stars have a birth and a life and a death, I was just hooked. And so in a in a supernova, when a big star dies and goes out with this incredible bang, that's when a lot of the heavier elements are created, including the iron that's in your blood.
1: Wow. And wow. you
0: know that <laughs> it's oh, it's so inspiring to think. I, I often will talk about, yep, it's Stardust, everything is Stardust, we are Stardust. Um, and use that in my teaching. And so the, the dying star explodes in the supernova. It creates iron as it explodes. Um, and then it's just this big cloud of gas and dust, and that starts to coalesce. And um, a few pieces clump together and develop more gravity, and they pull more pieces onto that until you might create a whole new solar system out of that um, the cloud of stuff from a dead star. And, you know, that's how our solar system was created and our Earth was created from materials from a star that exploded once and maybe from a whole series of stars that were birthed and died and birthed and died over the course of the universe.
1: It's so hard to like (laughs) wrap your head around, right? Something on that scale is just incredible to think about. Um, are there any other like cycles or stories that you look to in nature that help you sort of come to terms with this concept of death?
0: Geology is also really amazing. Um, besides, you know, living things, the rock cycle is incredible and how rocks have just been recycled over and over through the history of the earth. And, you Hmm. know, as, as a geology miner, it's really fun to look at a rock and try and understand its history and to think about how, you know, a continent might be subducted and then melted and pop up as a volcano somewhere else or how the the mantle recycles itself and how that actually, over the course of the Earth's history, the advent and life on Earth has actually changed the course of how rocks cycle and evolve hmm. and i wish i could tell you more detail um, my geology professor we did a program where we a bunch of adults went up to his classroom and he basically told us a history of the earth and and how rocks started changing once life started interacting with them on the surface and it hmm. is just amazing but i was reading a book recently called timefulness and i forget the author off the top of my head but she's a professor who's worked a lot in Minnesota and Wisconsin. And she was talking a little bit about climate change and our our perspective and how understanding geology can actually help humans live better on the earth, potentially. Hmm. But she brought up something that I um, don't think about often. And that's that the, the habitable climate on earth is limited no matter what humans do (laughs) by how the sun is going to age and die. Mm. And just to think about that future part of the, the earth not always being even close to what we have now. Mm. And so, you know, in terms of billions of years, um, life on earth is limited and the earth itself as a planet is limited. And that is just fascinating to me too. Um, We really are just this moment in time. And isn't it amazing that we are here to experience it on the earth with this beautiful ecosystems surrounding us. But it's so temporary. Yeah, You know, our lives are short. A mosquito's life is even shorter. (laughs) You know, timescales are all back and forth and big and small. But in in the end, um, change is really the only constant.
1: Well, and I I keep coming back to, like, I think the most beautiful things are fleeting. I mean, anything you look at nature and like even, you know, having young children, knowing that they're only going to be this age for so long. And then once you know that things are fleeting and temporary, I think you do cherish and relish them just that much more. And I think thinking about that, um, like there will be a, it's interesting, I'm listening to Sam Harris. Um, quite a bit lately, um, his Waking Up app, which is an awesome mindfulness tool. But he talks about the last time you will do anything, really. Um, And there will be a last time, like there will be a last time you pick up your child, there'll be a last time you swim in a lake, Um, there'll be a last time for everything. And you often won't know when that last time is while you're doing it. And I think keeping that idea and this idea that everything is temporary and there is a death like you just you just like are more mindful of what you can appreciate around you at any time um i'm curious how you like you you see these stories in nature repeated in so many different places like how do you personally translate that into a a guiding philosophy that maybe gives you comfort and maybe takes I'm not going to say it takes away the the fear of death. I'll let you <laughs> comment on that, but like how does it how does it help you with that concept specifically?
0: Mary Oliver, I forget which poem this is from, but she has this wonderful line. I think maybe it's the poem Gannets, and it is life is real and pain is real, but death is an imposter. And I am very afraid of pain (laughs) and a long tortured death, Um, but I I don't think, I mean I'm still pretty young, I don't think I'm afraid of death, you know, I I am excited um, to have my elements go off into the world and become something new. Um, And I know that a lot of times death is is just hardest for the, the people left behind. And yet, in my experience with my aunt Nan's passing, you know, a person being dead doesn't mean that they're no longer a part of your life, and so that that helps um, absolutely. And and even as you know, it, it gets kind of heavy to think about the Earth like not even being around in the future, and yet that idea of being recycled and decomposition is still there you know even if the earth isn't here in this current format the elements that are now creating the earth will go on to become something else and maybe maybe we'll become part of a star you know maybe we'll be exploded into some kind of nebula and a new star will grow from it and who knows what will happen with that and it's exciting to think about the the possibilities for the future it does help me um, go through the world. Certainly not every single moment, but when I'm out in nature, especially with my macro camera, or in that mindset of finding treasures, then I'm able to find wonder and magic everywhere I go in nature.
1: That's beautiful. I, it, the death is an imposter idea is is so cool, and I um, that reminds me of something that I heard uh, Joseph Campbell say, talking about death, actually, and it really stuck with me. He's um He talks about the concept of a light bulb. And, you know, it could seem like magic if you don't know what's there. And you turn on the light bulb and there's light. You turn it off, the light's gone. And he's like, if you were to think about the light bulb as you, right, and the, as a body, essentially, he's like, are you going to identify with the physical bulb itself or do you identify with the light that it holds, And is never gone, but passes through the bulb, right? And I think that's a really cool metaphor too. Um, So that stuck with me. And like you said, Mary Oliver's, so much of her writing stuck with me. And I think that would be a beautiful place to to end today if you um, wouldn't mind taking us out with her sleeping in the forest. I think that'd be a beautiful, beautiful words to end on.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And... I have a little story, too, about the first time I read this poem. It was in a library book on the University of Vermont campus. And I was just, you know, paging through some different Mary Oliver books, trying to figure out which one I was going to buy for myself next. And in the margin of this poem on the page, somebody had penciled in, is this about death? And I read it so differently after that you know my my first read through was like oh yeah sleeping in the forest that sounds um a little bit fun and maybe uh, slightly uncomfortable um and then when I read it again thinking is this about death it oh it just was so much more amazing there was so much more magic contained in the poem so here it is sleeping in the forest I thought the earth remembered me. She took me back so tenderly, arranging her dark skirts, her pockets full of lichens and seeds. I slept as never before, a stone on the riverbed, nothing between me and the white fire of the stars, but my thoughts. And they floated light as moths among the branches of the perfect trees. All night I heard the small kingdoms breathing around me, The insects and the birds, who do their work in the darkness. All night, I rose and fell as if in water, grappling with a luminous doom. By morning, I had vanished at least a dozen times, into something better.
1: To read through an archive of Emily's weekly column, visit cablemuseumnaturalconnections.blogspot.com, or you can purchase one or both of her wonderful Natural Connections books from any major bookseller. You can also listen to her column in podcast form by searching Natural Connections in Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening now. Open Air Humans is a production of Credo Nonfiction see and hear more at credononfiction.com and we'd love to see and hear from you as part of open air humans we're collecting something we call open air diaries we'd love a simple story from you about a moment you were out in nature and became awestruck tell us about a time you experienced something that made you feel a deeper or more profound connection to the world around you if you'd be so kind to record that story on your phone is great and email that audio file to openairhumans at gmail.com. We'll be collecting these and playing one at the end of each episode moving forward. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for spending your time with us and sharing your life with us out here in the open air.